Someone told me before the 8.45 service, I better drink before I preach because no one likes a dry preacher. <clears throat> All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together to uh, encourage one another and to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Father, we pray with gratitude for your work, which your word, which speaks so volubly of the uh, humble obedience of our Lord and Saviour Jesus, as he went as a lamb uh, to the slaughter uh, for our sakes. And we uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, did I mention that last, next week we're celebrating the Lord's Supper? It's, um, it's quite providential that uh, in the Luke's Gospel series that we uh, come to the crucifixion account uh, next Sunday, uh, where, we'd, <coughs> where we'd normally celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I think that's going to be a very special occasion next Sunday uh, as we uh, remember Christ's death on our behalf, uh, both by word and by sacrament. But uh, before his death is his trials. And uh, there is a saying which goes something like this. It says that the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I guess that's true, isn't it? That uh, we see this in life, that when... For example, two nations have a common enemy, even though those nations may have very, very significant differences between the two of them, for convenience sake, they become united against their common enemy. And then, of course, once that common enemy is defeated, uh, the two nations then turn on each other. Uh, think, for example, of um, the Soviet Union and America during the Second World War. It's the same with people, isn't it? Uh, if, there is, if someone finds another person to be painful, they don't like that other person, they can easily become united with others who feel the same way, even though they may not actually like the other people. And so that even enemies can become friends when they find someone who they can commonly direct their dislike towards. Uh, not a, exactly what you'd call a great basis for friendship, is it? And indeed, it's, it's shallow. It's got nothing to do with love and respect and can easily unravel. But a friendship just like that developed on the, uh, the morning after uh, our Lord Jesus uh, was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that in today's passage, if you care to open up your Bibles, at Luke chapter 23, where in verse 22, Luke rather poignantly says to us that on that day, Herod and Pilate became friends... And before this, they had become they they had been enemies. So how about that? Here is Herod and Pilate, two men who didn't exactly love one another, 
but they are united, they became united as friends on the day uh, that Jesus was put on trial. It's helpful to understand a little bit about the politics of that uh, region, which was called Palestine in the first century. Um, Palestine was, of course, ruled by the Romans. And the Romans spent a lot of time and energy and effort uh, uh, trying to uh, pacify the nations uh, that they had conquered. Uh, what they did not like was little local uprisings in any parts of their empire. And so they, they tried very much to keep the peace. King Herod uh, was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He was, he was the king when Jesus was born. After he, after he died, he divvied up his kingdom uh, amongst his sons. And one of his sons was the Herod, which is uh, spoken about here uh, in this account. Uh, he was a Jew, but he was of mixed descent. He wasn't a pure Jew. And indeed, as king, he was the puppet ruler of the Romans in the region of Galilee. Now, uh, just imagine in your minds that Galilee is a bit further north. Uh, south of Galilee uh, is the area which was known as Judea. Now, Judea was different. Judea was governed by a career politician, uh, a Roman by the name of Pontius Pilate. You see, the issue was that uh, the Romans appointed governors to govern Judea because, uh, quite frankly, the Herod family had not done a great job of ruling over Judea. So Rome intervened in a very direct way uh, by appointing uh, Roman governors, otherwise known as procurators. And so you can just imagine the relationship between Herod and Pilate. Uh, there's politics that's involved here. Uh, it was a prickly relationship. Pilate did not respect Herod. As Luke says, uh, they were both enemies. But all of that was about to change. Uh, on this particular day, it was uh, let all of those things just be bygones um, because on the day that Jesus stood before each of them on trial, we're told that these enemies became friends. Now, let's just step back into the Old Testament for a moment <clears throat> because there is an amazing prophecy of this day which is contained in uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 opens up by, with these, these words. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's a powerful picture, a foretelling of what we see here in Luke chapter 22 and 23. Now, uh, a bit more about the politics in Judea. 
The Romans had the technical legal authority uh, over the people, but leadership is more than just having technical leader, technical authority, isn't it? Um, you know, what's the definition of a leader? A leader is someone who has people following him. Uh, people did not follow Pilate. People followed their religious leaders, the, uh, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so on. And so it was the Jewish religious authorities who the people actually followed. Therefore, in chapter 22, verses 63 to 71, they are the first court to place Jesus on trial. And quite frankly, they treated Jesus with contempt. Uh, that night in the house of the chief priest, of the high priest rather, uh, they abused Jesus. Uh, they, the, the guards mocked him and they bashed him. Uh, they played a game with Jesus. They blindfolded him, and when he couldn't see, one of them would whack him, and uh, then they'd say to him, well, you're the guy who claims to have supernatural powers. Tell us which one of, which one of us bashed you. Uh, they were mocking him. Supernatural abilities, they ridiculed his claim. And this is all happening in the high priest's house, which kind of tells you something about the high priest, doesn't it? That he would allow... Who's the godly one here? Uh, it's certainly not the high priest. The whole nighttime trial that we learned about last week uh, was actually a sham because it was illegal to conduct a trial uh, in the nighttime. And so what we see here in this passage is that um, at the crack of dawn, they, uh, they convened an actual court. We see this in verse 66. They convened the Sanhedrin, that's the council of elders, chief priests and legal experts, and they set about the task of formulating a charge against Jesus which would attract a death sentence in a Roman court. Uh, now, for these guys, of course, a charge of blasphemy would be quite sufficient, but only the Roman governor had the authority to convict someone to death, and uh, blasphemy would not cut any ice with, with Pilate. He wouldn't be concerned about that. So in verse 67, they ask, the, the interrogation begins and they ask Jesus whether or not he is the Christ. Now, this is a good one. This is a good question to ask because if Jesus says yes, then, well, they can, they can twist that into a charge of treason. Uh, which the Romans would not tolerate. What we see here is that Jesus actually doesn't answer their question when they ask him. Now, I understand that the term kangaroo court is actually not an Australian term. It's an American term, and it, uh, it means a court where, uh, where they just jump over 
the evidence. They hop over the evidence in order to arrive at a predetermined outcome, a verdict. A bit like this one. You see, there's no interest in the truth here. Uh, they asked Jesus, you know, whether or not he is the Christ. Well, if Jesus had says, yes, I am the Christ, do you reckon that they're going to fall down on their knees and start worshipping him? Of course not. Uh, or if he asked them questions to, to talk about the Old Testament prophecies in relation to the Christ, the prophecies that pointed towards him, if he wanted to ask them, are they going to answer questions? No, of course not. They're not going to dialogue. They're not going to engage in any theological discussion about the nature of the Old Testament's teaching about the Christ. You remember when they asked Jesus a question earlier on and he said, well, I'll ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from man or was it from heaven? What did they say? They said, we don't know. Because we don't want to actually answer that. It would be like that because this is a kangaroo court. However, it's actually a court where Jesus is the one who is in control. Because in verse 69, he gives them the confession that they want. But he does so because... He chooses to do so, not because he's badgered into it by them. We see it in verse 69. Uh, it was verse 67, they said, If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, Well, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, this is, this is a claim to great kingship because what he's doing here is that he's joined together the, the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, which we've spoken about before, of one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days and being granted all power and authority He's uh, taken that vision of the Son of Man and he's joined it together with a prophecy which is in Psalm 110, which is a prophecy of the Lord's anointed being seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so he's taken these two prophecies of Scripture and he's brought them together and these guys understand what he's saying here. They're not silly. They know what he's saying. They know their scriptures. And in their mind, that that is a confession to being a king, a confession which they can twist in order to, uh, in order to, to secure a Roman conviction. But it's a hollow victory because in Psalm 110, God's king is also their judge. But they're not done yet. Verse 70. They all asked, 
Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You are right in saying that I am. And then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Uh, By asking this question, and when Jesus answers by saying, You are right in saying I am, they actually take this to be blasphemy. Uh, It'll mean nothing to Pilate, but it will mean a lot. It'll it'll carry a lot of truck with the crowds, the Jewish crowds who they need to carry along with them. So this is a charge of blasphemy. Therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 23, they now have everything which they need in order to take the prisoner to trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, notice when they get to Pilate, notice the charge which is against Jesus. They accuse him of saying, but by saying that we have found this man subverting our nation. Now, what does that mean? Uh, if someone is subverting or if someone is subversive, what, what are they doing? Well, sub means underneath, doesn't it? Uh, They're they're undermining. Uh, This person is undermining either a nation or they might be undermining a community or undermining an organisation. They're not doing so from the outside. They're doing so from, from within and below the surface. That is... A subversive person, they don't take up weapons, rather they, they poison people's minds. Uh, they white ant the social structure and the, and the leadership until, before you know it, the nation or the organisation in reality belongs to them. And this is what they've accused Jesus of doing subverting the nation. How is it that they say that Jesus is doing that? Well, they allege two things. First of all, they allege that Jesus Jesus encourages people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. Now, is that true? No. I mean, in uh, Luke chapter 20, when Jesus was asked this question, uh, what did he say? Show me a denarius. Whose image do you see on it? So, well, Caesar's. He says, well, render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Render unto God that which belongs to God. And guess what? You are God's image. Jesus did not tell people to not pay their taxes to Caesar. That's just a lie. That is a lie. But secondly, they then say that he claims to be Christ. Now, in case Pilate, as a pagan Roman, doesn't get what that means, they then spell it out. Christ, Pilate, means a king. That's misleading. He does claim to be a king, but this is misleading because that very night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they'd come to arrest Jesus, you remember one of the disciples that was Peter picked up a sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant? 
Well, these guys saw, some of these guys saw Jesus rebuke the disciple for doing that. And then what did he do with the ear? Picked it up and put it back on. Wow. They saw that. They knew that Jesus was no threat to Caesar, no military threat, that he wasn't going to overthrow the Romans. And this, brothers and sisters, is a point which does not escape Pilate. Because Pilate may be ungodly, but he's not stupid. I mean, he knew that these, uh, these Jews, some of these Jews, actually wanted someone to rise up amongst them and to lead a rebellion and to, <clears throat> and to boot out the Romans. They wanted that. So why on earth would they, would they dob someone in for doing the very thing that some of them wanted to happen? Well, Matthew and Mark in their gospel accounts tell us that Pilate knew that they were acting out of spite. He saw through them. Um, John in his account tells us that in the trial before Pilate, that Jesus actually said to Pilate, yes, I am a king. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, if it were, my disciples would have actually taken up swords and would have... And Pilate seemed to believe that. And so, in verse 4, Pilate announces his verdict. He says, to the Jews, I find no basis... For a charge against this man. Now, in a Roman court, that's the kind of words that you would use, like in our courts, the judge might say, or the, the jury might say, not guilty, Your Honour. And this is what Pilate is saying to the Jews. This is a declaration, not guilty. So, what we've had here in terms of Roman justice is we've had, first of all, an accusation. Secondly, we've had an investigation. Thirdly, we've had an acquittal. And fourthly, what should happen next? Well, under Roman justice, point four should be release. But here is where we see justice being trumped by politics. Can be have to be careful these days how you use that terminology, um, I think, uh, trumping and so on. But um, here we see justice being trumped by politics. Uh, <clears throat> the Jewish leaders, they now escalate the situation. Um, see what they say next about Jesus. We, we see it in verse 5, that they insisted to Pilate, and they said to Pilate, look, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. This is bigger than what you think, Pilate. Um, he started in Galilee. He's come all the way down here. He's been preaching this kind of stuff and doing all of this subversive stuff. All the, this, is, this is bigger than you, Pilate. They know how to press Pilate's buttons. 
He knows that Jesus is innocent. He does not want to sentence him, but neither does he want rumours getting back to his boss in Rome, Emperor Tiberius, that there's a mischief maker, that there's a troublemaker who's been working his way all around Galilee and all the way down to Judea, and that Pilate has been lenient on him. He doesn't want word getting back to his boss in Rome. So when he hears that Jesus has come from Galilee, that's kind of music to his ears. Is he a Galilean? Yes, he is. Well, beautiful. Because guess what? He's under the jurisdiction of Herod who happens to be in town that day for the Passover. And so he refers the case to King Herod. Now, Herod would have loved this uh, for two reasons. Number one, because this was Pilate, the Roman governor, respecting Herod's kingship. That would have flattered Herod. Secondly, he would have loved it because Herod was actually quite curious about Jesus. Now, we need to step back into uh, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee um, in order to understand that. In Mark chapter 6, Herod had imprisoned Jesus' cousin, uh, who was John the Baptist. Do you remember why he imprisoned John the Baptist? It was because of Herod's marriage uh, to his wife, which was actually an immoral uh, marriage. He'd married his brother's wife. And, you know, some people these days think there's something pretty flash about being a prophet. Well, you know, a true prophet will actually take the message of sin and repentance up to the rulers And uh, John the Baptist did that. He accused Herod and called on Herod to repent. Now, it cost him his head. Uh, His head was, he was beheaded for that. But before he was beheaded, when he was in prison, Herod used to like hanging out with John the Baptist he would go and visit him and he would, he, would, he would talk with John the Baptist. He listened to John the Baptist's teaching. He didn't understand it, but he liked listening. And so, uh, and then he executed him because of a promise that he made to his uh, daughter, at a, uh, his stepdaughter at a party. Now, When Herod had heard about the miracles of Jesus in Galilee, he actually became scared because he thought, well, this could be John the Baptist come back to life. Now, apparently he's overcome his fear because he's not scared anymore. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. 
From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. Jesus would have frustrated him. He just wouldn't answer his questions. I mean, Herod had had plenty of time to hear God's word from John the Baptist, and his response to that was to slice off his head. He'd had plenty of time to repent. And Jesus was not interested in performing party tricks. If someone just wants to see a miracle just so as to, uh, you know, excite their curiosity, then Jesus is not interested in that. He doesn't declare Jesus innocent, but he's too gutless to convict him. And so this godless monarch ridicules Jesus. Together with his soldiers, they dress Jesus up like a king to mock him and send him back to Pilate. Flattered because Pilate had referred a case to him, with a common dislike of the Jews and a shared experience of judging Jesus, Luke points out that that day Herod and Pilate became friends. I wouldn't want a friendship like that, would you? I mean, what's some friendship? A friendship based on that sort of foundation. But there's something which is even more pathetic that's going on here, and that is that the pagan Roman governor is behaving with more scruples than the Jewish religious leaders, the ones who'd actually had the the law of God, had the covenants of God. They'd received God's revelation. Uh, We do know from Matthew's gospel that Pilate's wife had 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 a dream, and in that dream uh, she because of that dream, she warned Pilate not to have anything to do with Jesus. And we know that that had frightened both of them. But nevertheless, in the way that he's acting, the, the actions that he takes shows a degree of uh, scruples, which is higher than that of the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 13, we see this in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people. Notice that it's Pilate who actually brings the people into this and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death and therefore this is the compromise. Uh, If it makes you feel any better, I will actually punish him. I'll do something to him just to appease you. But guess what? I'm going to release him. That's the verdict. Now, of course, they say that if you've got a small point, uh, you should use a big voice. 
Uh, or um, if your legal arguments fail, you can always resort to mob rule, bullying and intimidation. And that's what happens here. Indeed, now the Jewish religious leaders are utterly exposed because one of the um, traditions that uh, Pilate had developed was that uh, in order to butter up the Jews that he was supposed to be leading, uh, each year at the Passover, he would release a prisoner to them, grant a pardon, and uh, sometimes these are political prisoners. And in verse 18, the mob invokes that custom. They want someone released. They want a prisoner released, but it's not going to be Jesus. Instead of Jesus... Who is it that they want released? They want released Barabbas. What was his crime? Well, pretty much the same thing that they'd accused Jesus of doing, except worse, because he had done it. He was violent, and he had murdered people, and he'd been proven guilty, and he'd been sentenced and put in prison. It's interesting that it was because of men like Barabbas that a bit later on, in the year 67 to 70 AD, uh, that insurrection did happen and the Jews got into enormous difficulty with the Romans and caused the destruction of much of the city and the killing of many people. Twice more in our passage, Pilate now wants to release Jesus. He really wants to release Jesus, but the crowd demands that he be crucified. And so finally in verse 25, Barabbas is released and Pilate surrenders. What is it that he surrenders? Well, he surrenders justice and truth, doesn't he? As he surrenders Jesus to the will of God's enemies. But what else is being surrendered here? Let's think back to last week. That night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was uh, in a situation of temptation and trial that we cannot even imagine as he contemplated what lay before him. He's, he was under so much stress that his sweat was like drops of blood and he pleaded with the Father, if there be any way that this cup can be taken from me, please do it. If there can be any way that humanity can be redeemed apart from what I'm, I have to go through here, then please utilise that other way. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And God did not take the cup away from him. Instead, God provided an angel who ministered to Jesus in the garden and who strengthened him to do the very thing which he didn't want to do, but to do so because it was God's will. And now, before his judges, he does not plead not guilty. He does not plead innocence. He does not protest. Instead, like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus surrenders himself 
to the will of the Father. And I guess that uh, whilst there is no comparison, that there are times when we can gain great strength from the example of Jesus. Because there are times in our lives when uh, we will be treated poorly and unrighteously. There will be times when we may even uh, suffer some degree of ridicule because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's true to say that uh, in much of life as Christians, that uh, it is right for us to stand up for ourselves. Uh, Indeed, as we read through the Acts of the Apostles, we see that as the gospel was being preached and was spreading throughout um, that whole part of the world, uh, that the apostles and others were uh, put on on trial and they did defend themselves. Paul and Peter and uh, John did defend themselves and indeed uh, Paul invoked his Roman citizenship uh, in order to appeal Uh, his case to Caesar. Uh, But these guys did that for the sake of the spread of the gospel and for the sake of the honour of God. What you'll note is that they didn't rebel. They didn't um, lash out. They didn't become angry. They didn't cause uprisings against the authorities. And when we're being mistreated or ridiculed for our faith, uh, we can be tempted to lose control and to sin uh, by lashing out, by getting angry and by acting in vengeance. And what the Apostle Peter says is that in situations such as that, that we need to actually remember the example of Jesus on this day uh, as he himself was suffering. Uh, In 1 Peter chapter 2, which I've printed for you on your outlines there, listen to what he says. He says in verse 21, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Uh, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did he do? Well, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter explains the reason for that was because he was to bear our sins in his body on the tree for the sake of our salvation. If we are to be like that, then we can only be so uh, when our hearts are gripped by the reality of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus, though he was innocent, surrendered himself up, uh, that he drank the cup, for the sake of our salvation. We need to remember that God has a plan and 
We need to be people who soak ourselves in the word of God and in prayer that we might commit ourselves to God in difficult circumstances. Now, Peter here was not just uh, speaking academically. Uh, This was not theoretical for Peter because Peter had been in these situations himself. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, which we looked at very briefly last week, after being released from trial before the Sanhedrin, some of the very same people who who, uh, put Jesus on trial, Peter and John, when they went back to the other disciples, they they remembered Psalm 2, the psalm that I mentioned earlier on in the sermon, the psalm which begins by speaking about the rulers of the world uh, conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed one. And quoting that psalm, they know that that psalm applies to what happened in Luke 22 and 23. Listen to how how they understood that psalm as they prayed with thankfulness to God and prayed for strength to do God's will in the face of opposition. Let me pick it up there at verse verse 27. We're having quoted Psalm 2, they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. It was all in God's plan. And now, as they themselves face similar situations, they pray to God, saying, Consider their threats, consider what's happening to us, and enable your servants, strengthen your servants, not to retreat, not to back down, not to retaliate, but rather to speak your word with great boldness. And that is the encouragement to us today. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the obedience of the Lord Jesus, that he forsook his own interests in order to do that which was in accordance to your will for the sake of our salvation. We pray for ourselves in any event where we find ourselves being uh, treated unjustly, uh, ridiculed for our faith, even persecuted, that we would respond in the same way that uh, the Lord Jesus did, with confidence that you are in control and with a godliness which becomes an example even to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.